Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come hear the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Priscilla Farrell, the president of Friends of Animals, an international animal advocacy organization founded in 1957 and headquartered in Connecticut. If Friends of Animals' long history stands out, so does Farrell's tenure. She's been president for 30 years and has worked there overall for 43 years. The organization began with a focus on cats and dogs, particularly reigning in overpopulation of those animals by devising low-cost spay-neuter programs. In the ensuing years, Friends of Animals has widened out its portfolio considerably, from various animal rights concerns to veganism to a chimpanzee project in Gambia to a wildlife law program where a small squad of lawyers are affecting change and achieving improved lives for animals in courtrooms. In a truly wide-ranging interview, Farrell and I discussed her earliest years working at Friends of Animals, the profound influence of its founder, what it was like assuming leadership over the organization, changes she's implemented, some frank views of other big animal groups, and more. We're going to hear that interview with Priscilla Farrell right now. In fact, this is Priscilla Farrell on Talking Animals. Oh, great to be here. So at this point, Friends of Animals represents a number of distinctive things, including some pretty notable strings of years. For starters, Friends of Animals was founded in 1957, which by my math, assisted by a calculator, amounts to 60 years. So happy anniversary on the 60th. (laughs) Thanks so much. And in some ways, your own tenure is just as remarkable. Do I have this right? That you started working there in 1974? Yeah, November. Wow. So you, It's so, true. Yeah. So in November of this year, you'll have worked there 43 years? All of this is true. <laughs> okay. Wow. Sounds like, okay, enough with the year talk. But uh, but one last kind of milestone, I guess, is that I think also that means you've been president for 30 years of Friends of uh, Animals. Correct? That's correct. Uh, January 1987, the founder, um, who is from New York and, and started the group in 1957, is kind of a dog and cat uh, rescue organization and later uh, broadened it considerably, but um, she retired at the end of 1986. Well, I want to get into that evolution and her uh, specifically, but so far I'd say if, if you've been president for 30 years and been there for about 43, I, I haven't been in touch with human resources or anything, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say things are, seem to be working out okay for you in this job. <laughs> I think that I'm wired uh, for this kind of what seems like confrontational work. You know, if you're addressing social justice issues, which we are, um, you've got to work within a culture, you know, be flexible enough um, and compatible enough to really fold into the culture. And I think that the style of the organization when I first found it 
is somewhat similar to what it is today. Um, that makes me happy. Yeah, well, no, and that's also really, really interesting because, in fact, maybe it'd be helpful to trace a bit of both histories, both Friends of Animals and yours. But first, tell me about Alice Harrington, who founded the organization, because it wasn't exactly common in the 50s for people to be launching animal organizations. So I'm guessing she was a pretty singular human being. Totally. She was, um, you know, Sarah Palin used that phrase of being a maverick, and you know, which was a, a colossal joke. But Alice Harrington really was one. Um, I think she liked cats, you know, better than she liked human beings, and that was part of the the impetus um, to do something about was something that was addressing a problem very overtly, the homeless animal problem. She could see that in New York City. She could certainly see it in New Jersey, where she lived. Um, it's a nationwide epidemic, um, and, it, and it still is to a lesser extent, but it's still true. So she started the organization thinking that uh, she could adopt cats out and that would spare them a demise. And what she told me when she hired me was that for every cat that she had adopted out, one would come back. Um, and she realized that the homeless animal problem wasn't going to be solved through adoptions alone. That's still true. And what she created, um, and this program is still very active here today, was a nationwide spay-neuter program for all dogs and cats so that if somebody felt they couldn't afford a, a vet fee uh, for this surgical procedure, she would make it possible for them to get a certificate and work with a vet in our network to have the procedure done at a much lower cost. Um, that's also how I first found the organization in 1969. I was right out of the house and got my first job, had two kittens and, and needed to get them spayed or neutered. But Alice came from Wisconsin. Um, she was the daughter of a dairy farmer. And what she really excelled at wasn't social contact. I mean, I think she was not so great with people, but she was a statistician, um, and she could crunch numbers, and she also had this individualism about her so that her personality um, was impressive. She, you knew that you were um, talking with someone who was not only funny, um, she took kind of pains to have to speak with people, but she was awfully good at what she was doing. And when I was given the opportunity to work for her, you know, the interview was very short. <laughs> she said, what animals do you like? And I think she wanted to figure out whether I could think on my feet, whether I'd be adaptable, whether... I was, um, to use the phrase, willing to be exploited because, and I'm turning the table on that, but what I'm saying is if you're a young person trying to break into a company or a career in some place and you're not sure that you have a lot of experience to offer, you know, being willing to be exploited, meaning you'll come in early, you'll stay late, um, you'll answer the phone over the weekend if somebody calls you 17 times all of these things can make a difference. I caught on very quickly that I had to be useful, 
right? And I had an awful lot to learn, and therefore I was willing to be the sponge to soak up her knowledge. So I took this job commuting uh, from Connecticut to New York. It was a big, long, taxing day of, you know, five-hour commutes, um, which when you're in your 20s, it, it doesn't wear you down so much. You know, you can burn that candle at both ends. And I was um, young enough and eager enough to do it. And because I stuck around, you know, for 12 or 13 years before she decided on the uh, the retirement and the, the board voted for me to replace her, um, I think she saw me uh, as useful. It's yeah. as simple as that. Well, it sounds like uh, among her many gifts was that she was pretty good at sizing people up, including you. Well, you know, that that's funny that you're saying that. I think that's true. Yeah. I think she was rough to deal with, but she was quick enough to analyze, to be perceptive um, about whether people were solid enough for her. Yeah. And if you made the cut with Alice Harrington, um, she saw something about it, you. It's also interesting that you say she wasn't that great with people because these days, at least, the people that run as the face of major and even medium-sized organizations tend to be very well-spoken, very bright, very, in many cases, charismatic, or at least can get along great with people and antithesis of what you described about her. But it sounds like she had a, other strengths and talents and skills. And, and it's also interesting that as the daughter of a dairy farmer that she yeah. wended her way to animal protection and had this initial thought about cats and dogs and how to address the population. This is usually not necessarily the immediate sensibility of someone that comes out of that background. Where she came from was, you know, this tremendous affection for animals. Yeah. That's what it was. She wasn't trying to make it a, an intellectual exercise. Right. She was not a competitive person. I mean, she wanted what she wanted, and if she had a good idea, she wanted the idea to prevail. But this was not somebody who put on pretenses, who just liked tearing other people down. You know, that was, that was not there. What was there was her ability to reach for something that was further than what the culture could address, so that she wasn't trying to just fit in. You know, she yeah. really, when she took on um, animal rights as a, a wildlife perspective, meaning she thought, you know, yeah, we're talking horses working in New York and dogs and cats, but what about deer that are hunted and ducks that fly and the innocence of seals that are clubbed and, and what have you? She was the first to address fur as a commodity, um, as a vulgarity. She was the first to address uh, factory farming um, and, and to see that it became something more than that wasn't just a way of regulating an industry that was really treacherous for animals. She could see the wisdom in vegetarianism and, and you know, having people evolve away from seeing animals as their food. She did these things either in the 60s or the 70s when no other groups were doing them. Um, that, of course, captured my imagination yeah, tremendously. I'm sure. You know, that she was willing to go up against the cosmetic industry that was using whale oil and, and you know, as an ingredient or cow can cat food that was uh, using whale meat um, as an ingredient that she wasn't trying to figure out uh, whether a campaign 
was um, worthy because it would bring in a certain donation. You know, all of those things were the methods of some other groups, you know, then and later on, right? That they thought they had a board of directors to appease and they had to fit in with their lifestyle or some such thing. Alice Harrington did not take any prisoners. She saw things the way she saw them, again, um, wickedly smart, really, really capable, smart person. And so for me... It was such a, there's our fire horn in town, I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. (laughs) Uh, It was such an opportunity to learn um, from somebody who was a rugged individualist, a real maverick in the true sense. Yeah. Well, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Priscilla Farrell, who's been president for uh, 30 years of Friends of Animals, an international animal advocacy organization headquartered in Connecticut. This interview was recorded last week. So yeah, as I kind of started out, I mean, saying or asking you about, uh, as I'm hearing more, that only just reinforces that not only does she not take prisoners and she was really smart and effective, but again, a lot of the years or even decades that she was doing this, women sort of right. uh, achieving those kind of things or setting out to, I mean, even now we're seeing really bright, incredibly smart right. people in the Senate like, hey, interrupted or piped down or whatever. It's like, totally. I mean, seriously? So, totally. I mean, she seems even more impressive and uh, striking in, in those ways. And and what I I have to say, because you brought up the, the point I've, I would have hoped you'd get to, um, I was a feminist um you know, in my early 20s, forming now chapters for the National Organization for Women. That's how I got my start. And, of course, my affection for animals, I, I could I could see it based on the way they were treated in a society and, and the way females were treated, which was as a second-class citizen, right? So there was yeah. a relationship in the repression. Um, but working for another woman... Um, and I'd worked for a number of men in very tough industries. Um, I wanted to work for a woman. I absolutely thought that that was the way to go. Well, especially um, a woman like that, I would think. Yes. Yeah. You know that that she was um, she was different, and it it just offered me some pride. It it really did. Yeah. I thought this this defines success. On her own terms, you know, she was yeah. doing it. Yeah. Um, and that's what I wanted to do, too. I wanted to work for a woman like that. You know, in spite of uh, her being cantankerous, um, the success model for me was there. And so, given her personality and her accomplishments and how it influenced you, how did it shape your vision for the organization, both before you took over and then after she retired, then you're now president. So how did that shape how you saw Friends of Animals moving forward in the post-Alice Harrington era? Well, I didn't really see that I was going to take over. I had never imagined that, and it wasn't part of my ambition. Um... So it was a surprise. Okay. I was sitting outside a board meeting in late December 1986, and usually I was inside the board meetings, but I had to wait outside, and they came out and told me that I had been voted to be her replacement, and I was stunned, you know. Hmm. Just, um, I found it astonishing, and had a... Was this a, a position you were seeking, or... or, or I oh, mean, no. No, okay, oh, no. so you I totally... Mean, I, I was not only... I, I not only wasn't seeking it, I didn't know any... The, the, 
possibility of uh, of having such a position. Okay. I was happy doing what I was doing, and I started out as uh, her public information director and, and then um, became the New England director. So I had six states here that, you know, I worked all of her programs, and she'd bring me into the national office um, when needed, and I did whatever work she assigned me to, and she would love to pile you up with all kinds of things, you know, and give you immediate deadlines, and that was kind of okay with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I can deal with that kind of pressure, and so when I was elected to replace her, I was kind of stunned, um, and I thought, well, I've got a lot to do. I've got a New Jersey building, because she had moved our headquarters there, and I've got to get everybody up to Connecticut to make this doable for me. We'll keep a base in New York, and it, it kind of went from there. At first, it was dealing with co-workers and saying, you know, hi, great to know you, but n now we've got some structural changes. And I was um, not bold about that. I think I was kind of a little insecure about it, mm. you know. I thought this is a, a power exchange here that, you know, is we've just got to do this. Not, I don't know whether it would be delicately, but um, I didn't want to be the bull in a china shop. Yeah. That's for sure. And yet there was a force in my personality that was kind of undeniable. So the whole thing, you know, was I capable of kind of pulling things together? Um, eventually, I, I thought I was. In the beginning, I wasn't so sure. So that's interesting because it sounded like you were sitting outside the board meeting in 1986 where you would typically be inside the board meeting. So I would have thought when you first mentioned it that that was the meeting in which they were yeah. sorting out the new leadership. So, right, and I expected a lawyer to be chosen, somebody. But you, but you, you know. I assume that you weren't in that meeting because you were one of the people they were going to discuss as a replacement. I, I think you're right, but yeah. at the time, I, didn't, didn't I don't, I, I didn't think that much about yeah. why I wasn't inside. But um, I, I figured that they would come out and announce uh, somebody, and it was probably a lawyer that would replace her. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, so I could see how that would take some deft. Uh, maneuvering because if you were that surprised i can only imagine that some of your uh, colleagues <laughs> were like oh I, what happened I here think, yeah i think what i think what um the board members said a couple of them spoke to me afterward and there was a psychiatrist on the board and another lawyer i liked a lot in new york and the two of them said um you know priscilla we've known you here for i think at the time it felt like 12 years and um you've gone through everything and you've survived and and you're the durable person it's clear that you're the right candidate i had not seen it that way at all and i didn't have a competitive streak to see it that way i just felt that you know if you're lucky enough to work for um a social justice organization a bona fide nonprofit, you know and it captures your heart um, that's one of the good things in life. That's yeah. how I felt about it. So at that moment, it sounds like that you would have been quite content to just, hey, I've got these regions, I've got these responsibilities that Alice right. has, has given me, and I'm just going to keep plowing ahead and hopefully maybe expanding some. But, but right, and I and I and I will hope to get along with my new boss. 
Wow. I'll work at it. Yeah, and I guess you did get along with your new boss, as it turns out. <laughs> but uh, so, so then over over the the ensuing years, as you explained, Alice Harrington's vision was about cats and dogs, and then offering this kind of whole at that point fairly pioneering low cost spaying and neutering uh, assistance program, basically. So over the ensuing years, what would you say are some of the most significant components that have been added, probably chiefly by you, to the Friends of Animals portfolio? I think um, one of the big differences here, because there are a lot of things that are very similar, you know, we, do we still have campaigns to discourage uh, trophy hunting, all forms of hunting? Yes, we do. Um, we have anti-fur efforts um, to enlighten consumers so that they're not seeing fur as a fashion statement. Um, we have programs internationally that are different. Um, there's a chimpanzee rehabilitation project in the Gambia, West Africa, um, and we're very active with that. We sponsor that project on three islands that are like jungles, and we have a partnership with the government of Gambia for, for that project. Um, we have a reintroduction project of endangered species, an antelope called the Scimitar Horned Oryx, and we reintroduced that animal that had been obliterated um, from Africa, uh, West Africa, um, and we reintroduced them back to Senegal. And today that project is thriving with more than 300 oryxes. Um, we've expanded the habitat and reinforced um, the, the fencing there to protect them from getting into villages or... Um, you know, seeing goats, you certainly don't want to mix it up with, with livestock. Um, but that's something different for the organization. But more recently, uh, what really has cut us apart from everyone else, I think, in this field is a fantastic litigation office. And it's called our Wildlife Law Program. Um, it's centered in Denver, Colorado. And we have a staff of five attorneys and interns and sometimes externs and we have lots of litigation that we can afford because we've got all these people on staff so what we do is we sue the government when they make horrible mistakes when they're using uh, law but they're not paying attention to the law to justify particular carnage um, there are cases where we think animals should be upgraded for better protection on the endangered species list, and we make cases for why that should happen. We've won a number of these lawsuits um, so that there are wild birds and parrots and sharks, uh, prairie dogs, uh, some species of fish, and lots of wild horses um, that are better protected today than they were just five years ago. Um, in the last two years, we've halted the roundup of um, wild horses in six different incidences and western states. Um, and that's a very tough thing to do. That really was not done before our involvement. So that horses in Wyoming and Oregon, um, Nevada, uh, Colorado, um, we're working on several new cases right now that are pending um, have resulted in wild horses staying on 
federal public land rather than being eradicated from public lands because ranchers uh, want to dominate those lands with sheep and doomed cattle, you know, that get all the water and all the grasses. Well, that's a topic, not surprising, perhaps we've discussed a number of times on the show. So any inroads that you can make, and it sounds like you've made some significant because the the BLM and that whole rancher constituency is yes. uh, so powerful and uh, yes. just seems to steamroll over any kind of sensible uh, uh, moves or even attempts at legislation or anything else. What was the impetus for adding or, or creating the wildlife law program? That's fairly recent, I mean, in, in, especially in the arc of the history of Friends of Animals. Yep. I guess 2013 or thereabouts that that was launched? or that That's about it. Yeah. yeah. You know, we had worked with um, our... Wildlife Law Program Director, um, whose uh, name is Michael Harris, we had worked with at the University of Denver Law Clinic, and there are a number of lawyers there. Michael was prominent, who took our cases pro bono, and we had several victories. One was to stop the hunting of three endangered species of antelopes at Texas hunting ranches. Um, so we had some important court victories. One was in 2009, and uh, Michael said to me, you know, I'm being offered tenure here, and I don't really want it. I, He said, I have a fire in my belly for working for Friends of Animals. I, Again, I was pretty shocked that he said it. I thought any law professor offered tenure, you would think with the salaries paid and the privileges of being a professor, they'd just keep those jobs, right? Yeah. But he but he wanted to, again, be a maverick. <laughs> right. I was, and, as you were saying, uh, describing this, right? this is the step, stepchild <laughs> with, of Alice with, Harrington, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he wanted to risk everything, throw it, throw all the safety nets right out the window and, and come work here. And I said, you know, I'm scared out of my mind because... You'll want to build the staff and bring in other attorneys, and how the heck am I ever going to get a budget together, raise the money? I mean, we were getting coming out of a recession, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Right? We had lost um, perhaps half of our money and in investments, you know, over the 2007, eight, you know, going into 2009, and I was having to cut back on some things here for a while, and I thought, We'd be crazy to do this. Yes, let's do it. Yeah. Because really, it, it would be the way to legally intervene um, as much as we wanted to without having to find attorneys around the, the country to, to work for you. Um, and plus, I knew I was getting one of the best right out of um, the Denver Law Clinic. So Mike brought in one of his students who graduated, who Jennifer who he said, this person is a powerhouse and we work well together and we started just like that. And um, it's been um, just enormously important. They're working on things such as the right of ethical consideration in, in being able to take law further for animal rights than it's ever been taken. Getting ideas uh, to percolate with, with judges um, so that the rights of animals have a greater potential in any courtroom. It, it's very exciting. Yeah, well, along those lines, it just seems like kind of a central thing because we haven't, I haven't been doing this anywhere near as long as you have. But, I mean, having hosted the show a long time and having a lot of conversations, 
ultimately, it really comes down to whatever legal action you can do and especially what sort of legislative action. And everything else just circles around that until those things happen. Otherwise, whatever problem you're speaking about at that moment yeah. can only get so far and it can't be really remedied until one or the other or both of those things take place. So I think that I think we have to give people a reason to struggle and to hope yeah. in this movement. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, we talk about movement building, but what movements allow, you know, they allow people to figure things out and yeah. they allow our problems to be collective. And then there's support for all of that. But I think to to grow, um, we have to remake a culture. And, and that's what's hanging in the balance here, that all of these efforts and interventions, whether they're protests or whatever they take, it could be redefining your diet, which is a, a huge one, too. Sure. Um, you're trying to remake a culture. And in this time, in the age of Trump, if there was ever an important thing to do, it would be to, you know, get off your, your butt and contribute in in the most zealous, positive way to doing that. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty dramatic for a guy who's on the cusp of tenure and all this stuff as a law professor to say, hey, I don't want any of that. I'm going to come do this and start this program. <laughs> but, I, but I do think there are a lot of people that are doing their own version of that because it is the era of Trump and they're so horrified and it's like, okay, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a law professor, but I can do this yep. and I can do that. So they just do whatever they can and they, and they have to because it's just so, uh, it's so frightening right. just to sit idle and, and watch what's happening. So uh, let me uh, again let folks know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Priscilla Farrell, president of Friends of Animals, the international animal advocacy organization now celebrating its 60th anniversary and she has been president for 30 of those years. This interview was recorded last week. So uh, uh, with that in mind and just sort of the evolution of things and the struggle that sometimes required to arrive at a certain point and with law in mind, I kind of wanted to speak to you about this fairly recently passed law in Connecticut where, uh, where of course, Friends of, of Animals is based that allows judges to appoint legal advocates for abused animals, not unlike the way courts for a while have been able to appoint advocates for children who are victims of abuse or other mm-hmm. crimes. What, what, what are your thoughts on this uh, relatively new law? Well, when the, the bill was developed, um, we asked if we might be added to that list uh, to be a, an expert or advocate, mm-hmm. um, and we were denied that. Um, I think the Humane Society was, you know, behind it, and and they're they're a difficult group um, to <laughs> share any kind of thing with. So it didn't happen. But I think you know the our USDA here, our our Department of Agriculture does it really excellent job at cruelty cases. Um, and we've been invited when Senator um, Richard Blumenthal was our attorney general and made a lot of wonderful things happen in Connecticut. Um, we were invited in on a, a cruelty case involving horses and uh, brought to court to provide our comments and, and experiences, you know, as, as witnesses in that. Um, so it does happen, and it's important, you know, but we've got a Department of Agriculture here with the animal control officers who are as good as anybody anywhere. And um, I think their advocacy could could be, you know, a pinnacle for 
all other states. So th this, I think there's only been a few cases so far under this law. So are you taking a wait and see uh, added to how this new law, which I should, I guess, explain for people listening that that basically it allows the court to appoint advocates that do for abuse animal cases primarily and that speak then on, on behalf of that uh, of that abused animal. So they would go be in court and it would help, I think, with the totally overwhelmed court cases uh, mm -hmm. that the prosecutors have because uh, I think they're able to uh, interview and investigate and have some direct input and, mm -hmm. and in the courtroom. So uh, I don't think there's been too many uh, instances so far, but it does seem like an initial step in something that could be quite promising. And, and yet you'd need some legal skills to do it. Right. Well, I think that's the thing. I think they there's this law professor at the University of Connecticut, and I think under, mm -hmm. under her purview, some of her yes. law students, and I think there's other people, but I think they all have to have legal training, right, to be... Uh, that That's it. And yeah. when we were involved in this horse case in Connecticut, it was a confiscation case. And the two horses that were confiscated from a woman in Reading, you know, she did buy them from the BLM, and she neglected them and starved them. And they they lived through it, and they're well taken care of today. Um, but we were invited to help with that case as people who have at least one horse expert on staff. So I was going to ask you, Priscilla, uh, before we got on to the launching of the obviously very successful wildlife law program, uh, when we were adding about some things that have been just expanded over the years or added over the years and just how the organization has shifted. Uh, when looking at what campaigns or programs to add to the Friends of Animals uh, overall operation, what consideration do you give to the other organizations that either already work effectively in those areas? In other words, what is the calculus of examining an issue or campaign that, say, HSUS or PETA or a smaller organization has worked on for years and computing that, hey, more is better on this one, so let's get involved as well, versus this will sort of duplicate other organizations' efforts, so is it really prudent to, right. to earmark? I mean, one, one thing we, we don't do, we don't mangle other people's work, we don't hijack it. Mm -hmm. um, when we define a case... Uh, that we're working on, you know, often lawsuits, we're inviting other organizations to join us at no cost whatsoever. Um, but I, I don't remember a thing we've done. I mean, we've protested outside the Ringling Brothers Circus, and certainly there were other organizations that decided to join. Um, they haven't been efforts where we've told other people not to get involved. What the groups tend to do is is want their own headlines. So they're not they're not always you know joining you to kind of blend in you know whether it's an anti-fur demonstration there is some fierce competitiveness between groups and anyone right. that tells you that isn't so is just you know fooling you but with veganism with um vegan advocacy work you know certainly we need a village yeah sure <laughs> you know that everyone needs to be um promoting it whether it's a vegan restaurant guide or you know, an educational video or an expose into a, some horror system. Um, I think that 
that's already pretty much true. Or a vegan cookbook written by Priscilla Farrell and others. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, the the cookbooks, if, if you've got any competence to, to put one out that isn't going to bomb, yes, <laughs> yeah. they're good ideas too. And then promoting um, the other people that come up with recipes, even, even if these chefs um, are not bona fide vegans, if, if they're recipes that work, um, promote them. So I can't let this thing slide by because I'm curious to see when you said that we don't hijack or mangle uh, other organizations' efforts. Do you feel like some organizations, given how competitive things are, as you've outlined, have hijacked or mangled some of your campaigns or programs? Totally. Okay. Totally. Now, here's the thing. Am I going to be able to get you to say who some of those uh, organizations were? Well, you know, PETA has um, and HSUS has. Okay. But I I think HSUS... um, is controlling you know they have a, a tremendous amount of money that is not spent and they they fashion campaigns and efforts off it's you know their donation value often and um there are times where they have tried to steal our work uh you know a piece of legislation and change it get in the way of it um that's a horrendous situation but it, it's it's not a new one i've you know, if you've been around for a long time, you've seen people come and go. And as I think you indicated earlier, the style of an organization often reflects the people running it. So um, where I saw different things 20 years ago, we we have some changes um, now. And Friends of Animals is a independent group. Yeah. Um, I say that with, with some pride, I think, because... We're not trying to be all under one umbrella so that, you know, if HSUS says, here are the rules, you have to comply, you know, I'm kind of like an Alice Harrington in that respect. Well, I'm not taking my orders from another group and um, we're going to have principles that that we're not going to water down. You know, so if if we find other organizations that, that are similar, then... We share work. We support each other's work. That has to be the case. So sometimes you have to just say, hell no, Wayne Pacelli. We ain't doing it that way. So. Yeah, almost all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So, so with that in mind, what position would you say Friends of Animals occupies kind of on the landscape of animal protection or animal welfare organizations? Because well, part, part of that competitiveness, I think, is elbowing other groups aside maybe to establish right. or, or deepen an identity, which, of course, sometimes obviously ties into fundraising and other things. But sometimes has other motives as well. Um, if you see how organizations define themselves, you know, in a mission statement, or if the very first thing you read is that they are the largest, I think that, that gives you an MO right there. Right away you understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And they think that their um, success is in dominating a field of interest. Well, that is not our reasoning at all here. Um, So we're not trying to be the largest. I think to be the most lucrative, to be the largest, um, there's a lot you have to give away. And I I don't want to do that. It's it's as simple as that. I think we're a a medium-sized organization. We're not trying to be the largest. We're not not trying to to co-op. Um, other groups take them over, um, get them all rolled into one thing here, and to also have ties to to corporate um, animal agriculture or some such thing. You know, I I don't want any of that. 
but I understand that you can be a bigger organization, a wealthier organization, if you make some of these concessions. We're just unwilling to, to make them. Well, and again, as you kind of noted here in a way, saying you're the biggest is a bragging right that kind of cuts both ways, and you, yeah. you know, we see it uh, all, all the time as it actually plays out. Uh, another, just uh, we're in the final moment or two here, Priscilla, but uh, I'm just interested, I'm always interested in this sort of topic generally because an important concern for advocates and activists of all stripes is compassion burnout or just plain burnout and often the risk for that increases with the longer the person is engaged in that kind of uh, work so we've noted you've been working at friends of animals for more than 40 years so what methods have you developed? <laughs> Not dead yet. No, yeah. <laughs> I know, but, but all the more interesting, I think, would be what methods have you developed to keep that sort of burnout at bay? Um, two things, um, resilience and a sense of humor. It, it, and the other thing, something that Alice told me in 1979 when I went to the Purple Off Islands in Alaska and we had to observe the U.S. seal kill, and, you know, we got out of this kill four years later with some lobbying, but at the time I had to watch a thousand seals clubbed and stabbed to death. Um, One day, I, you know, my heart was broken many thousands of times over, and I looked at her, and she said to me, it's not about you. It was one of the most important things I had ever heard, and it stayed with me. It not only galvanized what I wanted to do um, and how important the work was to me, it was to get myself out of the the equation most of the time. So the work in the organization is not about me. You know, I'm lucky to have this job, um, but this is about this is about animals who, you know, have had no voice in this culture. And, and need people to stand up and, and defend them and to offer them the kind of respect that then defines the treatment they deserve in a protected habitat, you know, where their rights will get taken care of if we assure that. Um, that's how I feel about it. All right, so lastly, now, how many times would you say you've been asked about your name? Um, only by men, uh, okay. but... <laughs> Well, here, here's the wrinkle. I'm asking about your first name. No, but uh, so, uh, okay, so here, here, here's what I know or what I think I know. So born Priscilla Brockway, then Priscilla Brennan, then Priscilla Seymour, then I think around 1990, Priscilla Farrell. Is that, do I have oh, the timeline about right or no? You, you have only one thing wrong there. Oh. Um, I mean, there were, so there were two marriages that defined last names. Okay. That's true. Yeah. But... In 1974, um, and I was getting a, a divorce, and my last name had been Brennan, and I had some pictures taken, um, and it was for public relations purposes that Alice wanted, and I had very long hair, and it was blowing in the wind, and the person taking the pictures said, how feral, and I thought, feral, yeah, once domestic animal gone wild, that's kind of me, you know. And decided, since I was going to be in court on the divorce anyway, that I would ask for a legal name change then. Um, So it became the name that I used for work. Um, The last name Seymour was, you know, my daughter's uh, father. And that name I didn't use, although it was applied to me as being married to somebody with the last name Seymour. But 
Apparel originated from when I took the job. Wow. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, when you do that when you're awfully young, you think, you know, I'll grow up and I'll think this was foolish, like naming yourself Sunshine or some such thing. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I decided that, that whether or not um, I could be successful at marriage, and, and I'm married today, so I've been married three times. I, I'm not sure whether that's successful, but I'm, I'm happy. Um, I wasn't going to have it define me, and I really resented having to have my last name changed depending on what I was doing at the time. So I wanted to choose a name that didn't define a heritage, didn't speak of whether I was Irish or English or some such thing, and I didn't have to lose because I was not successful at a relationship. So that's my long, kind yeah. of complicated explanation. Well, uh, apart from being disappointing in the yet another male, I guess it's so interesting that no females ever asked <laughs> you about this. But apart from that, I am glad I asked because it's a lot more interesting story than I frankly thought it might be. And, uh, and, and also because it seemed like how you embraced it during that photo shoot and then sort of what it came to represent. And then as you your tenure at, at Friends of Animals continued, in some ways it, it sort of broadened out even more on some interpretations. So, uh, oh, so, well, thanks yeah. for that. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. All right, so we've been speaking with Priscilla Farrell from Friends of Animals who are coming up on their big 60th anniversary. July 14th, I think, is the bash? It is, in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Cool. So people can go to friendsofanimals.org to find out about all the kind of things we were talking about and a lot of things we didn't even have a chance to talk about. That's how many campaigns and programs and issues they uh, deal with and also find out about the big 60th anniversary party. So, uh, Priscilla, thank you so much for all your time and uh, joining us today on Talking Animals. Thank you so much, Duncan. Your enthusiasm is really contagious, so congratulations for that. Well, likewise. All right. Thank, thank you. you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. My thanks again to Priscilla Farrell and the Annals of uh, Animal Welfare, Animal Protection Organizations. Friends of Animals is quite a tale, as is uh, Priscilla Farrell's, so really uh, enjoyed speaking with her. Right now it's time to step into the comedy corner with a piece from Joe Zimmerman, a comic who's truly become a talking animal's fave. He's also become a favorite of Brian Regan, opening many of Brian's shows these days. A great combo, and of course, Brian himself is a Talking Animals fave, long-time fave. But uh, this is really about Joe Zimmerman, featuring his piece called Crows, in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals. I'm mad at Google right now. I had an important question to ask, and I remember typing in, what is my... Before I could finish, the thing that Google suggested was spirit animal? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, what is it? Because <laughs> you see other people and you know, right? You're like, toucan. <laughs> but nobody's ever told me mine, so I'm genuinely taking this online spirit animal quiz. <laughs> hoping I'm a chocolate lab. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been more disappointed than to learn I'm a crow. I thought these were supposed to be fun. Congrats, you're the scavenger bird. You're defensive. You're defensive. The crow likes laughing and eating. Everybody likes laughing and eating. It's almost like these internet quizzes are just making stuff up. 
I was aggravated, like a crow would be. So I went back to Google, looked up second opinion online spirit animal quiz. Like, no way I'm a crow twice. This time I'm basically lying, trying to get chocolate lab. Like, love snuggling and being rescued. Come on. Quiz number two told me I'm a cricket. That's not even an animal, that's an insect. I don't want a spirit bug. So now crows starting to sound pretty good. Now I'm researching more about crows to learn a little bit more about my people. <laughs> Typing into Google, are crows cool? And uh, short version, they are. They are cool. I recommend them. Crows recognize individual human faces. I know you guys are like, this guy's not going to keep talking about crows, is he? <laughs> but I kind of need to. I'll sum up the study real quick. Basically, a scientist was mean to a crow and then released it, waited to see if the crow remembered him. Not only did it remember him, but it was like, I hate you. And then it surprised him when it told other crows and it could point him out in a crowd. It was like, that dude's cool, that dude's cool, that's the dude. And then those crows spread the word to even more crows. They were like, that's the man who bullied Jonathan. Sound, that doesn't sound that crazy because we also recognize other human faces. That'd be the equivalent of us recognizing an individual crow's face. Like, there he is. That's the one who stole my windowsill pie. So don't mess with crows because they're smart, they hold grudges, and groups of crows are called murders. You know what groups of people are called? Groups. I'll tell you who else holds a grudge. Crow Zimmerman. That was Joe Zimmerman with a piece called Crows, taken from one of his appearances on Conan. Coming up at 11 on WMF, it's Rob Lorai and Radioactivity, kicking off a three-hour block of interviews, phone calls, news, and more, including in the noon hour, Midpoint with Nola Lale. Then at 1 p.m., Craig Cop presides over executive session. Meanwhile, on this show, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering a DVD copy of the acclaimed documentary, Cowspiracy. I'm Duncan Strauss, and you are listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is talkinganimals.net. It's the time to proceed to Name That Animal Tune. This is a giveaway, but please only participate if you haven't won something from WMNF in the last 90 days. And there'll be a prize, a copy of Cowspiracy, to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals.
blood will stop Too lazy to cope a day I don't know. I'm going to say we might have given it away, but we try to make it easy. We want you to win. So in this case, though, I misspoke because uh, I'm not there to take your call. So I apologize. What you should do is email Duncan at WMNF.org with your guest. The first person who does that will get the copy of Cowspiracy. My mistake. So used to doing it the other way. I uh, just forged ahead with the phone number route when today it really needs to be the email route. Duncan at WMNF.org. The first person who emails me there with the correct guess on Name That Animal Tune will win the copy of Cowspiracy. Meanwhile, I have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Lorai is up next with Radioactivity. I'll be back next Wednesday, July 12th with another edition of the show. Please visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. iTunes podcasts are available there, too. There are also links to our uh, Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook, the show, and or me personally. And follow me on Twitter. By the way, it's almost better with the whole boosting post uh, racket that Facebook has. Friend me on personally on Facebook rather than follow me on, on Facebook or like us on Facebook. Why not do both? There you go. You can also subscribe to our e-newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the Talking Animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals, be kind to others, be kind to yourself. As usual, we're closing out today's show with an animal song. This one from Shamika Copeland, covering Joni Mitchell. There's a good combo for you. And also extending our crow theme from Joe Zimmerman's piece. So this is Shamika Copeland with her version of Black Crow on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Community Conscious Radio, thanks for listening. Speak again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. on Talking Animals.
I see it again. I'm like a black rose flying in a blue sky in search of love and music. My whole life has been illumination, corruption, and diving, 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 diving down to pick up on every shiny thing, just like a black crow flying in the blue sky. Thank you. 